morning, everybody. Welcome. Good to see you. Good morning to you if you're joining us online. We're glad you're with us. So Henry Nowen has written lots of books. One of his that I particularly like is a book called Can You Drink from the Cup? Henry Nowen uh, died a number of years ago. Henry Nowen was a Catholic priest. And he writes these books that are simple and deep simultaneously. And in his book, Can You Drink from the Cup? He gets pretty deep into the engagement with the cup of communion, with the sacrament of communion, particularly from a priest's standpoint. And so he says there are four things that you do with the cup as a priest. The first one is you have to hold it, like chapter one is holding the cup. Chapter two is lifting the cup. Chapter three is serving the cup. Chapter four is drinking from the cup. You're probably thinking, how can you write a whole chapter on each of those? So what he gets into as he develops the book is that the cup becomes a metaphor for life, for your life, for my life. The cup, in a sense, is a representation of the life you have, the life you've been given. The contents of the cup are what God has given us. And you probably know this, but I think it's helpful to think about it. Your life is uniquely yours. There is nobody else who has the unique combination of factors that you have. So nobody else can live your life, and you can't live somebody else's life. And so we've got this invitation, which is, then how do I live my life in the best possible way? So in the first chapter where he talks about holding the cup, he describes this idea that for many of us, there are things in our lives that we don't like, that we wish away, that we wish weren't true, that weren't part of our experience, right? So one of the things we learn as the years go by is that there are many things that happen to us that we didn't choose or we have very little to do with. But the interesting part where the storyline gets really interesting is even though a lot of things that happen to us are things that we didn't choose, we do have an opportunity to make choices about what we do with those things that have come to us. And in a sense, he develops the idea that this is where the storylines really are. If your life was a novel, there would be the stuff that happens to you in the story, but every novel that really holds any interest is about what people do with what happens to them. So Nowen describes this idea of the cup being your life, and he says the first thing we have to do to really live our best life with God is we have to hold the cup. Like, you have to take hold of it. You have to take ownership of it. You have to say, this is my life. This is the life that I've got. This is the life that I have for my earthly experience, and we have to take hold of it. Because in reality, many of us would rather not take hold of it. Many of us would rather look at the cup and say, I don't want that life. So no, I don't want to take hold of it. He talks about how in a number of cases, what we're prone to do is compare our lives with other lives and say, I'd rather have your cup. Like, I don't like my cup. I'd rather have your cup. Most of the time, he says, that doesn't really go anywhere fruitful. We don't grow in any meaningful way as a result. But we're prone to be tempted to want to do it. Usually, however, 
that view of somebody else's cup is just our impression of their cup. We're not really deep into understanding what's in their cup. So your life is uniquely yours, and the opportunity to live it to the best is uniquely yours. And the things that are hard in your life are uniquely hard because they're uniquely yours. Some of that is because of your circumstances, your relationships, your family background, your financial situation, your personality. Some things that are really hard for me, somebody else might say that wouldn't really be that hard for me, but it's hard for me. It's uniquely mine. So another guy that I like to read is John Bailey. John Bailey has written a book of daily prayers, and he has a beautiful way of saying things. And in one of his prayers, he says essentially this, Now, Lord, as I go into this day, would you help me live deeply with you the mysterious opportunity of my life? And that's a really interesting phrase, the mysterious opportunity of my life. Like, there's a lot of mystery in it. You had nothing to do with when you were born, where you were born, the family you were born into, and I didn't either. What we do have something to do with is what we're going to do with what we were dealt. But there's a lot of mystery. And so what if we could say, Lord, help me to live to the full with you, the mysterious, and note the word opportunity, the mysterious opportunity that is my life. All right, so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and I'm going to start, I don't know how many of you are bilingual or trilingual, but I'm going to ask them in a foreign language and see if you can understand them. Okay, here's the first question. What is your vision for your pain? See, now you're thinking, what? Like, I don't think I understand what you're saying, right? So I used English, but it's a foreign language. That question is a foreign language question. Like nobody has ever asked us, what is, what is my what? What is my, what is my vision for my pain? Is that what you're asking? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm asking. Well, we're Americans. The answer to what is my vision for my pain is to not have any. That's the answer to my vision for what my pain would be about. Okay, so, like, that's a foreign language question. It's foreign to our culture and the way we've been taught to see life. Okay, here's another foreign language question. Ready? Would you rather have a harder, better life or an easier, worse life? I know you're thinking, David, say it again because you got your words confused. Right? No, but it is a foreign language question because it's a foreign concept to our culture. Because would you rather have a harder, better life doesn't compute. Because everything in our minds is a better life is an easier life. And so an easier life is the better life. The Bible will invite us into much deeper places than that level of engagement with life. Would you rather have a harder, better life or an easier, worse life? So we're going to take a look at the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Habakkuk says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. 
The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Sometimes in the Bible, the most significant words are the seemingly most innocuous ones. The word yet doesn't generally appear to be a word loaded with power. But when yet lands in the wording in the middle of what Habakkuk is saying, it's an enormously explosive word. And right there in the middle of it, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. You see, when he uses the word yet, what he's doing is he's turning this from protest to lament. So I've been talking a little bit over the weeks we've been together. There's a very important difference between complaint and lament. Complaint is self-centered. It has me as the core of my vision. And thereby it has what's happening to me as the core of my pain. When we are self-centered and what we do is just express complaint, self at the center of my vision, then what we're likely to do is just grind in internal cycles of self. Complaint generally will not grow us to be more beautiful or deeper, more meaningful people. Complaint will have protest with it. And so what we've got in the first verse in 17 in Habakkuk is his expression that there's nothing left in my life. The fig tree doesn't bud, no grapes on the vine, no olive crops, no, fuel, no food in the fields. I've lost everything. Yet. The word yet is what turns it from protest and complaint to lament. Complaint is self-centered and its vision is self. Lament is God-centered and its vision is God. And here is a tremendous difference. There is no book in the Bible called the book of complaint. But there is a book of lament. It's called Lamentations. I think if there's a book in the Bible about it, if the Bible is God's word, then God's inviting us to embrace the reality of what this all means. So we live in a culture, back to the foreign language idea, that whether you know it or not, at like every turn, the culture is saying to us, Prosperity is life, and life is prosperity. Okay, so that's going to leave us with a vision of pain, which is we have no clue what to do with it. We've never thought of it. We've never engaged it. We've never anticipated it. We've never entered this space in a meaningful way. Maybe you know the phrase in the Bible, without a vision, the people perish. The more street-level version of this is, if you aim at nothing, you hit it. You've heard that. So if you have no vision for your pain, if you're aiming at nothing, you're going to hit it. We're all going to hit it. What we're going to do is we're going to flail and flounder and protest in self-centrism when the hardships come. And I know that there's ordinary hardships and profoundly deep hardships. If we aim at nothing, we'll hit it. If we've never had an idea, an invitation, a vision of what we will do with our pain, we'll aim at nothing and we'll hit it. We'll flail and we'll flounder, and in many respects, our lives will just kind of fall apart. So if we live in a culture that's saying prosperity is life and life is prosperity, it's going to give us a vision that makes us 
what I'll call prosperity bushes. Let me explain it. Compared to Isaiah 61.3, which we've been talking about as kind of the anchor for this whole series, that God will provide for those who grieve in Zion, bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Do you know what God's vision is for us with our pain? That we would become oaks of righteousness. Those are not my words. Those are God's words. They come from him through the prophet Isaiah. His vision for his people through the painful times of life is that we would become oaks of righteousness. And that possibility is always available if we enter this with him. But it's also possible to never find it if we don't enter the hard places with him. So God's vision for his people is that we would become oaks of righteousness, but frankly, the most natural vision for us in the culture we live in is that we would be bushes of prosperity. And the bushes are going to die as soon as the weather gets cold and when the winds begin to blow. And then God says, I can give you beauty for ashes, I can give you joy for mourning, and I can give you praise for despair. You see, it's an invitation, those words. And some of us can hear that and say, that is completely impossible. If you knew my pain, you wouldn't make jokes about it like that. This is far deeper than jokes about it. This is the transforming power of God and how he uniquely can use our pain to bring about redemption. So if you read Habakkuk, I'm guessing that you didn't all come in this morning like fresh up on your Habakkuk. When you get to the end of the chapter, there's a little note in study Bibles, and it says, a song for stringed instruments for the congregation. You're like, what? What it's saying is that these words from Habakkuk are the lyrics of a worship song. Right? Like to us, we're like, "Uh uh-uh, foreign language again. Here are the words to a worship song. Though the fig tree doesn't bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. You see what they are? They're songs of sadness. And when songs of sadness are songs of lament, which means they're directed to God, they become songs of worship are sad songs of worship. See, a lot of us have thought that songs of worship could only be the happy songs about how good and beautiful and wonderful God is. But if our songs are directed to God for who God truly is, then it's a worship song even if it's a sad song. And Habakkuk is a song of sadness as a song of worship. Okay, so let's take a look at another one, Lamentations chapter 3. Similar in feel. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet. Yet. This I call to mind. 
and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I'll wait for him. Both in Habakkuk and Lamentations, this tiny word yet that is usually innocuous is explosive in its transformative power. So in Lamentations, Lamentations, the whole book is five distinct poems. Each one of them is 22 verses because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So I don't know about you, but literally I'm thinking this. Okay, here's this expression, which is, my life is in the tank. I've lost everything. Let's write a poem about it. Who does that? Only somebody with a vision higher than themselves. I've lost everything. And yet, here's what I do know. I do know there is a good, loving God. Even though I have a million questions about what's happening, and most of them will go unanswered. Yet I call this to mind. Five poems. So where Habakkuk were songs of sadness, this is poems of pain, and all the lyrics will equal up to worship. Yet. And so what is being said in Lamentations, which most people attribute to the prophet Jeremiah as the author, he's basically saying, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. His mercies are new every morning. What he's saying is, though the days are full of pain, the mornings are new with mercy. Could you possibly hold those two together? Though the days are full of pain, the mornings are new with mercy every single day. In other words, when he gets to the end of verse 20, he says, when I remember my pain, my soul is downcast within me. That's the protest, that's understandable. But then comes barreling into the middle of it this enormous word, yet. In other words, what he's saying is, when there is so much I do not know, here's what I do know. When there are so many questions and so much mystery and I'm feeling so much upsetness in my life, when there's so much I don't know, this I call to mind, here's what I do know. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I say to myself, I coach myself. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Sometimes when life gets really hard, we get into the places where there's so much we don't know. God, I have so many questions for you. And in the midst of all that we don't know, one of the best things we can do is return to what we do know. What we do know are things like this. I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you, says God. Well, I don't feel that right now, God. It is nonetheless true. Here's what I do know. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't feel that right now. I feel separated from you, but that feeling does not impact the actual truth of the matter. So when we're in the midst of all that we feel and all the turmoil and all the upheaval, when we feel that we've lost everything and we remember and experience our bitterness and our gall, what we do is we talk about and remind ourselves of what we do know. So, you know, the word cooperate I don't know, it's sort of an interesting word. When I hear the word cooperate, 
it kind of rolls together almost like it's the co and the operator sort of tied together. Like, you know what, we just need you to cooperate. And when I hear it that way, what it means is just like go along with it. Okay, but if you look at the word closely, what it means is to co-operate. It means we're going to be co-operators in what happens here. So one of the enormous invitations from God in the midst of the painful places of life is to cooperate with the work that God can do. And this is the God who suffers. You know this, but there is no other religion in the world where God is the God who suffers. The Bible tells us and makes it clear, our God is the only God that has experienced the death of a child. Not only that, a brutal, unjust death. Our God is the only God in the history of any religion that has ever experienced that anguish and suffering. Our Savior is the only one who is described as being acquainted with bitterest grief. We've talked about this, but it's helpful to be reminded. Who endured injustice and pain and mockery, betrayal, beatings, and execution of the most painful kind. Our God is a God who suffers. And so when we are going through our pain, we're not dealing with a God who doesn't get it. We're not dealing with a God who knows nothing about it. We're not dealing with a God who is far removed, looking down on us like a tyrant outside of the story. We're dealing with a God who entered human life and who lived it and who knows what that pain is. So we have an opportunity to cooperate with God, and this is the God who suffers. And then the phrase, oaks of righteousness, becomes gleaming in its towering invitation, that they would become oaks of righteousness. I read it, and I think about those words, and I think it's helpful to me to think of it as oaks of rightness, oaks of God's rightness, not self-righteousness. Lord knows self-righteousness is part of our challenge, but oaks of God's rightness. And one of the things that is remarkable, though it's really hard, is that often it will be our most painful times where God can heal what's wrong in us. I shared last week, if you happen to be there, about a time when I was in the tank and I was spitting nails and I was upset and feeling betrayed and criticized. And I went for this long run and it was a messy combination on my face of snot and spit and tears. And I was praying and I was praying and just like, God, I didn't bargain for this, I didn't deal for this. And I am like so wounded by this. What do you have to say? What I sensed from God was, David, if you are so wounded by this, maybe there's too much of you in your vision. It was one of the hardest, most helpful moments of prayer that I can think of in my entire Christian life. If you are so wounded by it, maybe there's too much of you in your vision of it. One of the painful beauties of the hard times is that God can use hardship like nothing else to heal what's not right in us. But you see, all of this hinges on this huge question of whether we will cooperate with God or choose not to. Whether we will pick up our cup or say, uh-uh, I am not holding that cup. So Habakkuk and Lamentations, they both basically say, though I have nothing, yet I have you. Though I have nothing, I have you. 
And the process of this journey, which never happens quickly, only slowly, is that I am learning through the pain that you are what I desire most. That you are what I desire most. So, have you ever read the Bible and you're just on cruise control? Your eyes are going over, but you know you're paying no attention. And then somehow something hits you. It's kind of like, you know, newer cars, you can drive on cruise, but if you're not paying attention, the automatic brake will kind of hit, and you're like, whoa, what happened? So I was reading in Second Chronicles, and I was reading on cruise control. And then I came to this, and the automatic brakes hit. For we've no power to pay, face this vast enemy that's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Like when life gets really hard, I don't know what to do. I feel powerless. This thing is bigger than me. I'm overmatched. I don't have the emotional stamina. I don't have the ability to handle it or manage it. I feel like I'm getting swept away in the waves of it. We don't know what to do, but that but is as big as the yets from Habakkuk and Lamentations. But our eyes are on you. That's what I'll do. I don't know what to do, but here's what I do know what to do. I will fix my eyes on you. When Jesus came to the end of his life, on the night of the Passover meal, which we will begin to move toward in a moment, you may remember that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and in a crucible of prayer, he prayed, and he said, God, if it is possible to take this cup from me, please do, but not my will, yours be done. This cup, that cup that was going to be Jesus' life, is the biblical cup of God's wrath, where God will bring his wrath on sin and Jesus will pay that price for us so we will get his righteousness. So he prays this prayer of lament. It's not a prayer of complaint because it is directed toward God and it is laden with faith. God, if it be possible to remove this cup from me, but not my will, thine be done. The next day he's on the cross, and as he dies, he yells out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know that that's a prayer of worship? Do you know that that's a prayer of devotion? Do you know that in the midst of his suffering, he is saying, My God, you are true, you are real, you are who I have. And though right now you feel so far away from me, my lament is to call you my God. Because even though you feel so far away, you are not not existent. And so in the midst of the lament, he cries out to the God who he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt is real. In the midst of his lament, saying you feel so far away, but those are words of worship. These are expressions of lament because the worst of all existence would be if you didn't exist, God. That would be the worst of all of it, if you didn't exist. So in the midst of all that I feel and all that I question about and don't know about, my poems of pain and my songs of sadness are my expressions of lament because absolutely at the bottom of it all, you. I believe it was Augustine who said, 
The person who has God has everything. And the person who has God plus everything has nothing more than the person who has God. And so we read these words that say things like, my heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart. I will rejoice in the Lord. You see, lament ultimately says, my life stinks right now, but what I cannot be is without you. And so the songs of sadness and the poems of praise, excuse me, the poems of pain become the words of worship. So one of the things, right, when life is hard, depending on how you've experienced this, some people would say, okay, I know hard things come, and I know that I won't always have answers for them, but here's one thing I really do want to know, God. I want to know that you know. I want to know that this is not happening randomly without your awareness or your attention. If I can just know that you know, it will help me enormously. Psalm 56 describes this this way. You keep track of all of my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. So behind all that we don't know, here's another thing that we can know. God has collected every one of yours and my tears in a bottle and recorded every one in a book. So I read about these tears and I did what I do. I googled how many tears do human beings cry in their lives. To make a long Google story short, The answer is the average person cries 121 pints of tears in their life. That's a little more than 15 gallons. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle and you've recorded each one in your book. You see, once we begin to know this, we realize that our lament is yeasted with worship. So we started by saying, what's our vision for our pain? Whoever envisioned that God's vision would be our transformation from bushes of prosperity to oaks of righteousness? Who knew that through our pain there could become beauty for ashes? There could become joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair? Who knew that when Habakkuk said, the sovereign Lord is my strength, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. Who knew that the way to get up to those heights is to go down through the valleys? Who knew? God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask you to meet us this morning, each of us with our own story and our own cup. Would you give us the faith, the vision, and the courage to take hold of our cup? And as we come to this communion table, Lord Jesus Christ, would you meet us so that participating with the cup that you are giving us, we are able to cooperate with you in the lives we're living and your work that you are doing in redeeming. Would you meet each one of us by your spirit, we pray in your name. Amen.